welcome to all of you. My name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and it's a pleasure uh, to be here with you today. And if you've got a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to take it and turn to Matthew chapter 7 uh, in the New Testament. If you want to use one of the Bibles around the room, it's page 679 there. We're in the final week uh, of a series called Asking for a Friend, where we've been talking about different questions of faith uh, that come up, questions that come up maybe in your everyday conversations, maybe some questions that you've always wondered about and, and were maybe afraid to ask. And today I want to look at a question that emerges in Matthew chapter 7. And uh, these are some well-known words by Jesus. In fact, if you walk up to the average person on the street today uh, and ask them to recall one verse from the Bible, uh, even if they know very little about the Bible, even if they have very little experience with the church today, chances are uh, many people will quote some variation of these words from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, ironically, this verse, which many people love to quote, is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. And yet, many will use this verse to silence anyone that dares uh, say anything negative about things like adultery, abortion, homosexuality, gossip, or slander. And many will be sure to remind you that along the way, Jesus once said, hey, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, one of the questions I want to begin with today is to ask, why are these words so well known in our culture today? Well, I think the first thing we want to recognize is this, is that as Christians, as a church, we have not always done the best at representing Jesus. Uh, we failed. We have, uh, I failed in this. Um, uh, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons wrote a book called Unchristian, and uh, in it they cite a national survey which found that 87% of young adults in America today would say that the word judgmental accurately and best describes present-day Christianity. And that's really humbling to me, and, uh, and maybe to you. And whether or not it's completely true, it's the perception. And so like it or not, we bear some responsibility for this as we have not always done the best at representing Jesus to our world, and for those reasons, we need to confess of our sins and uh, confess for inappropriately showing judgment uh, towards or unloving, you know, maybe being unloving towards others. But I think there's another side to this as well, and, and a reason why these words are so known in our culture today is that, secondly, we live in an increasingly intolerant culture, uh, which is ironic because the same culture that demands tolerance of all people is becoming increasingly intolerant towards Christians and the church, and I just think that comes from the reality that we live in a world that, rec uh, that, that rejects any mention of moral absolutes today. Uh, it's, uh, just think how often you hear things like, you know, who are you to say what is right and wrong? How, how, how dare you judge me? What, what, what's wrong for you is not necessarily wrong for me. And so think about how often you hear things like this or how often maybe your kids encounter things like, hey, be your true self uh, or be who you are, become who you were always meant to be. Uh, it was the late Professor Alan Bloom in his book, The Closing of the American Mind. Uh, I think he said this so well and almost prophetically back in 1989. He said this, there is no enemy other than the man who is not open to everything. And so is it any wonder that these words of Jesus in Matthew 7 are so well known and I think yet so misunderstood at the same time? And so the question I want to wrestle with today is then what did Jesus mean by these words? Uh, what was he getting at? Uh, when is it okay to judge someone? Let me point out just from the start what I don't think Jesus meant with these words, okay? And I just say this, that I, Jesus wasn't against moral discernment. 
All right? That's not what he's saying. He wasn't saying that it's wrong to think critically, uh, to discern right from wrong, good from evil, sin from righteousness. And I know that Jesus wasn't asking Christians to go undercover either, like to never have an opinion about anything or when appropriate to speak up regarding what we believe to be best. And so it's important to realize that these words here in Matthew 7 were given as a part of a larger sermon or sermons that Jesus gave that we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And virtually all of the Sermon on the Mount, both preceding and following these words here of Jesus, are based on the assumption that as followers of Jesus, we are expected to discern between right and wrong, that we are expected to discern between good and evil, and that we are to make a difference in this world. Like, look at some of these examples in Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14. It was Jesus said that, hey, as Christians, you are the salt of the earth. He goes on to say that you are the light of the world. You're like a city on a hill not to be hidden. He continued a few verses later uh, in regards to the question of, maybe is the Old Testament outdated and not worth anything to us anymore? He reminds us, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And if you continue reading on your own through Matthew 5 and even into Matthew 6, you'll find that Jesus had lots to say about things like hatred and sexual sin and divorce and the way that we treat others. It was Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 verse 4 that, or excuse me, 13 that distinguished between the wide gate and the narrow gate. He says, hey, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So again, Jesus reminds us over and over that we are to be different than the world around us, that we are to pursue righteousness, that we are to avoid being like hypocrites. And all of these are found in the same context of do not judge or you will be judged. Like look at some other places where Jesus had similar words about sin and confrontation and judgment. It was in John 7, 24 that the same Jesus said, hey, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So evidently, there's a right and a wrong way to judge. It was in Matthew 18 that Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Here are a few examples from other places in the New Testament. These are the words of the Lord written down by other writers. In Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, it was the Apostle Paul that says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. He says, keep away from them. On at the end of verse 19, he says, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. It was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was addressing this issue of sexual sin that he merged in this church in Corinth, and he said to them in verse 3, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. He says, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment. And then down in Titus chapter 3, in regards to those who are causing division and trouble in the church, look what Paul says. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And finally, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, speaking about this false teaching that can creep into our lives and into the church, he says this. He says, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted... Basically, other than what is true, let them be under God's curse. Sounds pretty judgmental to me when you think about it. Here's the point. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God issues one command after another for us because God despises sin, and Jesus despises it too. And so 
I just want you to see a handful of examples where Jesus and others make a clear distinction between sin and righteousness, between good and evil, and things like repentance and confession and forgiveness are clearly represented all through Scripture. And so when Jesus said, do not judge, he was not lowering the bar in regards to sin in this world, the seriousness of sin. He wasn't commanding us to not exercise moral judgment or to keep quiet on matters that are influencing our culture today. And so we've got to ask, what are then are we to make of his words? What's the heart of what Jesus is getting at here? And again, it's important for us to realize that Jesus shared these words in Matthew 7 in the midst of his most famous Sermon on the Mount. And with these key messages, Jesus was actually painting a picture for us of God's ideal kingdom here on earth, a kingdom where God is judge. Jesus is king and Lord of all, and we are citizens of this kingdom. And it's a picture of heaven, really heaven on earth, and what happens when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves at the very same time. So let's dig in deeper uh, for a few minutes, not only with this one verse in Matthew, but also a handful of others that I think can provide for us some greater clarity on what Jesus has for you and me as his followers today. So Matthew chapter 7 again, starting in verse 1, let me read a few here for you. Again, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Right away, I want to note here that this word judge comes from the Greek word krino. All right, and this word means to evaluate or to analyze, and it's a tricky word to understand because it's used in at least a couple of different ways in the New Testament. First of all, it's used to distinguish between good and bad, uh, to distinguish between sin and evil. There's a level of moral discernment uh, that is identified in this word crino or judgment. But secondly, it can also be used to describe the role a judge plays in issuing a verdict or punishment. Now, as we look at the life of Jesus, we certainly know that he rendered strong judgment of others. Take his disciples as an example. I mean, over and over again, more than once, he called out his disciples for their sin. He called this out in them and then forgave them as they chose a different way of thinking. And if you look at his life and if you study the days of his life, you know he had all sorts of encounters with different men and women he barely knew. And he distinguished for them the difference between right and wrong. And so here's the thing, I don't think moral discernment is what Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, but rather, get this, rather judgment as condemnation. That's what Jesus is prohibiting. He's warning people like you and me from taking on the posture or the position of God and condemning someone else. Jesus is prohibiting a self-righteous, self-serving, hypocritical judgment of someone else. And Luke chapter 6 provides greater clarity of these words. It's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is much more concise, that he records these very same words of Jesus and adds to them. Look what he records in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Here's what I think we need to wrestle with this morning, and I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but what are some takeaways from these words by Jesus? 
How do they apply to our life? How can we put these to practice even today for the sake of God in this world? The first takeaway is this. Write this down if you're taking notes. That is, I think these words of Jesus are a reminder to let God be God, to let God do His part, that God has a part to play in this world, and you and I have a role to play as well. And at no time is it our responsibility as Christians to condemn one another. And that is to make judgment on the personal worth or the eternal condition of someone else. God will be the judge, ultimately, for how each person has spent their life here on this earth. And as Jerry talked about just a few weeks ago, God alone will determine the eternal destiny for each person. And so when we judge, when we take on this role of condemning other people, what we're doing is we're declaring that someone else has no worth that they have no value or place in the eyes of God, that they do not matter to Him. And what it really does is it reflects, uh, it reflects an ignorance about our own sinfulness. And so verse 1 here is the prohibition by Jesus. Verse 2 is really an extended warning. Look at verse 2 again. Jesus says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged too. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so Jesus is basically saying the same thing here, but now by two words, both judge and measure. And what he knows and what we need to realize is that no human can live up to the standards of God on their own, that no level of good or bad can make us worse or better in the eyes of God. And as Kevin talked about a moment ago, even as we are taking communion, it's Christ that makes all the difference for us. Christ changes everything. And that's the beautiful thing about what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. It reminds us, it reminds you and me today that there is no sin too great, that there is no life so lost that Jesus can't rescue anyone. See, we believe that Jesus can redeem any life. He can redeem any person. And so Jesus warns us, He warns His people to stay out of the condemning business, that God will judge, that He will judge every person on earth according to whether or not they trusted Jesus Christ with their life and with their salvation. And our part is to agree with God that every person you have ever laid eyes on was worth Jesus Christ dying for, that our Savior Jesus Christ is indeed the shepherd that will risk the 99 for the sake of going to discover the one lost sheep because every life matters to Him. You know, there's something else we learn from these words of Jesus, especially for those of us that want to follow Him. The second takeaway is this, and that is to be aware of the sin in your life, that we need to be uh, intimately aware of the sin in our lives and never get cozy with it. Look at His words again, verse 3, Matthew 7, 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? He says, how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a two-by-four in your own eye? Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, sometimes we get so comfortable and maybe a little too complacent about our own personal sin, and yet we have this great ability to see it in others so well. Or we excuse, we'll do this, we'll excuse certain behaviors, or we'll categorize sins, and we'll refer to some, or at least in our minds, we'll, we'll, we'll see some as greater sins, and then there are others that are these lesser sins. But, but here's the thing about our sin. I, imagine if you would, imagine standing on the street or looking out the window of a building in the heart of New York City, Manhattan, you know, and, and by that look, if you've ever seen that before, there are buildings of all different shapes and sizes and colors, and the architecture can be so different on so many of them, and that's the perspective of the ground level, but then imagine that same scene from the perspective of outer space, 
That's the heart of New York City as well, but you can't really distinguish from the different buildings from that perspective. And we do the same with sin sometimes. From the ground level, we'll look at our sins or we'll look at the sins of others and we'll compare them. But in God's eyes, it's all sin. All sin is sin. And so Jesus warns us from becoming so focused on the sin of others that you might not ever consider your own or maybe more easily let yourself off the hook. It's a concern with hypocrisy. And Jesus is against hypocrisy, and what he knows is that when we live hypocritical lives, instead of people being drawn to our faith or drawn to our Savior, they can actually be pushed away. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is he is challenging us. He'll do it in other places as well. He'll, he'll challenge us to make looking into the mirror of your life just a daily discipline, because doing so has the potential to make you more aware of your sin, of my sin, and and to produce humility in us. And, and here's the thing, if you look in the mirror regularly and you don't see anything, you might want to get a different mirror, right? Or you might want to get some people in your life, some friends in your life that love you enough that they can look in your life no matter the season and they can love and encourage you, but they can also speak truth into your life when necessary. And consider these questions, maybe just daily. Maybe we do well to consider these questions each day, questions like, am I humble? Uh, do I regularly confess my sin to others and before God? Is, is there anything uh, that, that's in my life right now that disgusts me, that I'm leaning on Jesus for, uh, to change me? Am I finding victory over anything? Or, or, or is the way that I see others right now in this world coming out of a deep love for Jesus Christ or a bitterness from something else? Or, or do I have a story of God's grace at work in my life, and do I really believe that the same grace that's been demonstrated to me could do a great work in the life of someone else too. Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned. Every single one of us, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and so we all need Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the only one that can save us from our sin. It's only the Holy Spirit that can help us grow, and here's what happens. The more and more we stay humble, the more and more we realize we need Jesus, and through that, that we're able to extend grace and love as we have experienced and received that grace and love. And so here's what we've established so far. Jesus says, don't judge, don't condemn. Basically, let God do his part. And then he says, hey, don't overlook. What he's explaining here, describing here is, hey, don't get overlook or get comfortable with sin in your life, but confess your sins and make every effort to live a holy life. And as we do these things, here's what the Lord can produce for us. Here's what we can do for one another as Christians and as a church. It's the third thing, and that is that we can encourage and help one another overcome things like sin and do it out of love. Do it out of love. Again, Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. See, as Christians and as a church... We have an opportunity to help encourage one another, all right, in the good times and in the bad times. And, and part of that means that we can confront one another, but we can do it out of grace and we can do it in love and we can hold one another accountable and by doing so, help encourage one another, help encourage growth in each other's 
lives. Con- consider this. I-, I think maybe this will illustrate it well. The, the Boston Marathon uh, was a little less than two weeks ago, and uh, there are so many great stories that came out of the Boston Marathon, one being the remarkable performance by the American women in this year's race. And uh, two of the most well-known women, Desiree Linden on the left and Shalane Flanagan on the right, represented the U.S. so well. In fact, Desiree Linden on the left was the female winner this year of the women's portion of the Boston Marathon. But again, there were so many cool stories that came out of the race, one being that went something like this, that just a few miles into the race, Desiree Linden on the left kind of tapped Shalane Flanagan on the shoulder as they were running together towards the front and said, hey, listen, I don't have it today. In fact, I will pace you for a while and then I will probably drop out of the race. Well, they continued on together until about halfway through the marathon. Get this, Shalane Flanagan on the right supposedly tapped Desiree Linden on the shoulder and get this said, I got to use the restroom right? And I'm just encouraged that for even professionals, you know, nature calls, right? I mean, there's just a moment where you got to do what you got to do. And so sure enough, Shalane Flanagan bolted off the course to the nearest porta pot And I love what one writer said. He said, I clocked her in and out of the porta pot in 13.8 seconds, which is remarkable, really. But what Shalane Flanagan didn't realize is that Desiree Linden held back and waited for her until Shalane Flanagan was able to join her, and together they were able to pace one another to get back up to the front, and wouldn't you know it, Desiree Linden on the left, who very early on in the race had decided she would drop out, went on to win the female portion of the Boston Marathon. And what a great example for how we can encourage and help one another. We can support each other and lift each other up. As followers of Jesus, we can do the same. We can encourage each other, help each other, correct one another if necessary. I believe that Jesus just imagines a church where friends can do this for each other, that you can have a relationship with someone, a a tried and true relationship with someone that you can look them in the eyes one day and out of grace and out of an awareness of your own sin, be able to look to them and just say, hey, there's just something different about your life. And And I love you, but there is a joy. There was a joy in you that seems to be no longer present that's just full of criticism and cynicism now, or that a connection group, you know, that a connection group together here at Genesis can love each other so much and have spent so much time together in the good and bad that even a connection group can be that support and love for each other and call one another out if necessary. I'm so grateful that I've got people in my life like Jerry and Steve that can look me in the eyes and call me out if necessary and do the same for them. But here's the thing, and let's pay attention to this, our motivation in that, in doing that, must come out of grace and love and a desire to see God's very best at the work in someone else. And it best happens again out of a tried and true relationship with one another, one that has experienced some time. And again, because you've experienced the grace of God in your life, you want to see the power of that grace at work in someone else as well. Now, let me just address this question before we go on, because I think it's an important one. Should we, as followers of Jesus, ever correct or confront a non-Christian for the way they are choosing to live. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you to not judge those inside? He reminds us that God will judge those on the outside. Who's to be the judge? Paul says God will. He'll do that part. And so here's the thing. When we decide 
that we're going to be the moral police or the spiritual authority for those outside of the church, we face the potential of trying to replace God. And it's not our job to be the moral authority for those outside the church or to expect people outside the church to agree to a standard that none of them have ever agreed to live by. One pastor, Kyle Eidelman, said it like this, judgment and correction is an issue of jurisdiction. And it's not our place to correct people who have not agreed to live by the Bible or to follow Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saying their behavior is okay. And it's not our job again. It's not our job to be the spiritual authority. Now, let me just say this. Does that mean that you and I ever won't have the opportunity to speak into someone else's life? I think there are certainly some exceptions, but I got to say that we have to earn that right with others. We have to have spent time and demonstrated love and developed a relationship with others. And so opportunities like this take time and trust. And keep this in mind too, that people far from the Lord don't just need info. They need an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so as you think about the people in your life outside of the church right now, these relationships that you have, you might want to ask yourself, am I being a good listener? All right? Or am I seeking to understand? And remember, there might be some people in and around your life right now that you are disgusted by, but if you knew their story, it would absolutely break your heart. And so if you took the time to love them, there is no telling what God might be able to accomplish in them and what God might be able to accomplish in you. And I think we'd do well to take these words of one man, Ian Bounds, to heart when we say, before you talk to others about God, make sure you are taking time to talk to God about others. And so let's be patient with the pace of God in people's lives. Let's let God be God and keep in touch with our own sin at the very same time and encourage and help each other overcome sin and love. And then one more verse before we close that falls into the context of what Jesus is saying that we haven't looked at yet. Verse 6. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, what is the pearl here? Well, this is a reference to the good news of Jesus Christ, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this isn't some cheap imitation pearl that Jesus is referring to, but it's a treasure. All right, it's priceless and it can change any life. And it's a good reminder to you and me today that if you've got Jesus Christ in your life, if you've trusted him with your salvation, all right, as a follower of Jesus, you share the same responsibility that I do, that we do in sharing that pearl, all right, in sharing that good news with other people. So again, what's Jesus getting at then with these pearls and pigs and reference to pooches, all right? Well, when Jesus referred to people as dogs and others to pigs, his listeners knew he wasn't trying to be cruel or harsh, but dogs and pigs had no particular place or value in this culture at this time. Dogs were known for ripping precious items apart. Pigs would trample anything of immense worth. And so to a dog or a pig, a pearl had no value. And so what's Jesus getting at here? Well, I think the theologian Scott McKnight says it so well. He says, what this text teaches us is that we have to learn when to speak and when to walk away. And then get this, and sometimes walking away is the most gospel-honoring thing we can do. See, he recognizes the challenging world that we live in today, that we're going to meet resistance, that following Jesus in this world certainly isn't easy because we live in a culture that says we're judgmental. And there have been so many occasions when this is true. We've judged. I've judged. But as McKnight explains, 
He says this, the truth is much of the uproar about Christians being judgmental never gets beyond the simple observation that Christians, because we turn to the Bible and seek to practice it, think certain things are right and wrong, good or evil, wise or unwise. And he says this, while we may be called judgmental, what is really being demonstrated is an intolerance for another way of seeing things. And let's not forget at the very same time that we find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual battle in this world today, and people aren't the enemy. The evil one is the enemy. He is the one that has blinded hearts and, and, and eyes and from others understanding and knowing the good news of Jesus. And so no matter how difficult it may be, it doesn't change our part, no matter what others may say. The last takeaway is this, that as followers of Jesus, we represent Jesus to this world. That's our responsibility. That's our role to represent Jesus. And perhaps the best example then for how to live out the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 can be demonstrated in what we see in Jesus Himself and in one place particular at the end of John 7 and 8. And uh, you might recall this story, but it's this account where uh, the Pharisees, a number of kind of judgmental men brought to Jesus a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they were ready to stone her. They were ready to take her life for the sins that she had committed. And so they put her up before Jesus almost as a way of putting him on the defense of, hey, Jesus, what would you do with such a woman? And I love how John records that event and that moment and well, here's how Jesus responded to them. He says, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, At this, one, those who heard began to get this, walk away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then get this, she replied, no one, sir. And then Jesus said, and then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He was able to, with perfection, live a life full of grace and truth all at the same time. And not just 80% grace and 20% truth or even 50% grace and 50% truth but he was full of grace and full of truth all at the same time. And I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying for you that I can describe or perfectly define every moment or situation that you will ever find yourself in with any person. But what I believe we've got to pray and ask the Lord is just this, how can I be more like Jesus today in every day and every moment of my life? How can I shine light into a dark place and do it humbly and with grace? And how can I share the story of what God is doing in my life out of a place of deep conviction and pray for people and demonstrate generosity like the world has never seen and when appropriate, take a stand for right and wrong and oppose things like hate and sexism and racism in our world today, but do it with grace and love and with accountability. How can we, how can I be like Jesus, a person of grace and truth? And how can we do that together the same? We've got to trust the Lord every day. 
and be humble and dependent on him like we never have before. Will you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you. And, but even before I pray, I want to just recall those words of John that in that moment where her life could be taken, only Jesus was left. And she had nowhere to turn but to turn to Jesus. And that's everything that she needs and I need and maybe you need today too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for not only giving us life in Jesus, but we thank you for sending us a perfect example in Jesus. Father, increase our hunger and our dependence for more of you, God, and show us each day and in each moment to live a life of grace and truth as Jesus has lived a life of grace and truth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.